This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Our Real Life in Christ, Experiencing the Life and Quality of Faith Provided by Jesus Christ to Overcome Any Obstacle in Our Lives. And our author is M. Alberto Zelaya Aragon. I got close, didn't I? Yes, you did. Zelaya Aragon. All right, sir. May I just call you uh, Melvin? <laughs> that's fine, Jay. Mel, that's, it's great to have you on the program. Tell me about great your. Great to be with you. Tell me about your book and your background. This is a, a book that appears to be a Christian study guide. Is that a correct analysis of your book? Well, it's not really a guide because it's not. I don't want to tell people. Uh, the how-to or, or, or one, two, three, and you get there. It's actually my experience, you know, of um, the exchange life in Christ, you know, and I want somebody to perhaps uh, follow the same road you know, that happened to me and experience the same things I'm experiencing, you know, and that's really the whole thing about the book. What motivated you to put it in print? Well, actually, I didn't plan this book at all. Uh, I played with the idea as a young man, but the subject of it wasn't even close to the one we're discussing. The book came about when, after a year or so of counseling, teaching, and holding worship services in three different jails, you know, I decided to expand and update the handouts that I used to write and leave with each prisoner so that they would have something tangible to remember and study. Uh, the jail has a lot of, a lot of, you know, different, uh, uh, regulations, and each handout had to be a single 8 by 11 sheet which made it difficult to cover a subject in depth. After a while, you know, I had a steering within, and I could see that each handout uh, as a chapter of a book that I could write and distribute to the jail libraries and share my wonderful experiences, you know, of studying the book that is truly alive and supernatural. How long did it take you to put this book together in written form? It took me approximately 18 months. And then probably another 10 months to put it into printing. Who do you think is going to enjoy reading this and find benefits from your experiences and your studies? Well, it should appeal to anyone, whether they were born again yesterday or, as in my case, 38 years ago. Because it really brings into focus what Jesus said about living the exchange life. Most Christians uh, just uh, don't seem to get or understand that... uh, uh, the purpose of him experiencing our life was so that we could experience his life in the here and the now. Uh, this is this how his words in John 10.10, 10, uh, and I'm going to use the Amplified Bible to really give uh, justice to its meaning, when he said, I came that they may have and enjoy life, and that they have it in abundance to the full, till it overflows. And then Paul later wrote in Ephesians 3.19, that they may really come to know practically through experience for yourself the love of Christ, which far surpasses mere knowledge without experience, 
that you may be filled through all your being into all the fullness of God, that you may have the richest measure of the divine presence and become a body wholly filled and flooded with God himself. I mean, when you read this in, in as close to the original meaning, it takes an entirely new and different meaning to the one I imagine. You know, and actually I was taught because, you know, it has nothing to do with all the material wealth of possession that, that I used to uh, think that John 10.10 10 meant. However, you know, uh, this, uh, this brings also, you know, when you read these two passages, it brings into focus also Matthew 6.33, you know, where, when, he, when Jesus said, uh, but seek, aim, and strive after, first of all, his kingdom and his righteousness, his way of doing and being right, and then all these things, that is, you know, all our physical blessings, taken together, will be given to you besides. What exciting about this is that uh, this new understanding, you know, Matthew 6.33, which is the material blessings of being a Christian, you know, where God takes care of us, pales in comparison with experiencing John 10.10 10 and Ephesians, you know, 3.19. Now, as a young Christian, I desperately desire to have someone or, or somebody to share with me a biblical road to preserve that first love experience, you know, when we come to Christ, you know, and and I think this this is the way that we can maintain this position, uh, uh, and that's really what I'm sharing in this book, you know, to go back to that experience, you know, when, you know, that I experienced, you know, when I first met Christ. Describe the process of writing this book. You had mentioned that you were in prison. I'm assuming that was as a visitor, and as a teacher, and as an instructor, and as an inspirational leader. Did this have an influence on putting this book together, or was there more to it than that? Well, I think I actually, in writing this book, my you know, I experienced it. You know, my hope is that the, that the reader may come to understand and you know have the same experience uh, that the you know I think the apostles had the personal experience with Christ, and I think that's we're supposed to have that same experience as they are. You know, at least that's what I'm experiencing right now. I think most churches are not teaching this. You know, they, it, uh, this is not hidden knowledge or, you know, or require any special qualities. You know, um, I think when if, if you read King David, you know, in Psalms 25:14, I think it tells us, you know, the same thing. It says, "The secret of the sweet, satisfying companionship of the Lord have they who fear, revere, and worship Him." And he will show them his covenant and reveal to them its deep inner meaning. And I think that my, that is what I experienced as I wrote this book. You know, I, I, I really could see uh, the, the inner and the deeper meaning of what God really has in mind for each one of us, what his plan is. Well, your title is The Real Life in Christ. How would you introduce this book to someone in a couple of sentences? Well, I would say uh, uh, to any of my friends, you know, that I wanted to share uh, this non-religious book, uh, because despite its title and genre, you know, that has, that, you know, could revolution, it really has revolutionized my life, and I hope, hopefully it will revolutionize yours. Uh, it's not a manual or a how-to book or even a set of instructions, but really it's a description about what Jesus wants to accomplish in someone's life if they're just not willing to listen and follow his instructions. There are a lot of religious books in the marketplace, a lot of study help books and inspirational guides. What makes your book different from the rest of them out there, and why should your book be one that I 
feel inspired or impressed to read? Well, all books usually have a unique message that cannot be compared to others. However, what would set this book apart is the topic itself, because it addresses the current malady in the organized church where most Christians worship. I don't know if anyone has noticed, but the church of today seems to be influenced more by the world uh, way of life than instead of the way around, uh, in order to attract more members. Uh, even though even the word sin, you know, which uh, uh, seems to be a dirty word today, not to mention you know how little is even talked about. The fact is, you know, that that God's definition of sin is quite different than the ones I've heard preached when I was young, or what even some churches are at teaching today. Uh, in addition, the, the, the solutions that God presents in His Word addresses the disease that causes the sin, not the symptoms as the churches, you know, typically do. Uh, the other component that sets it apart is that despite the title and genre, you know, classification as a religious book, uh, the book itself most likely will be considered by many religious people as anti-religious. And, and I, I admit it, you know, in some ways it certainly is because it points out the failings of organized religion in their methods of training new believers. Jesus did not come to give us a religion, nor did he ask to mass-produce believers, but to make disciples of each one of us. Because this is only, you know, but we're to become disciples only with the tools that he made available, and not the ones being used by the organized religions of today. The Book of Acts is the foundation story of the development and building of a church, a New Testament church. Mm -hmm. How is it that Christians today don't seem to have that same experience, that same desire that same power in their lives what's missing i think what what's missing you know, is that we are really are to um imitate the life of christ you know when when uh, when he said why do you call me lord lord you know and you do not practice what i you know what i'm saying and i think you know if if each one of us really aim to actually practice what he said i think we probably have the same experience uh, i think i think today you know um, being a Christian is, 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 is no more, no more different than being, let's say, Republican or a Democrat. It's not in the same depth and, and life-changing way that it was in the first, in the first century. We also have to remember that in the first century, you know, there were no Bibles and most people couldn't read or write. So the experiences then, you know, would have to be quite different, you know, than today. Today we do have those tools, you know, and it's up to us to use those tools to experience, you know, what those people experienced in the first century. Is there an underlying one or two words that you would say describes your book appropriately? I think that it would, you know, would be for many people an eye-opener. Uh, it would be exciting. And I think, you know, they would come to be really impressed by his amazing grace. Was there anything challenging about writing your book? And conversely, was there anything that you would consider fun? Well, the most well, the most challenging part is that when the original manuscript, you know, was about 24 uh, um, uh, chapters, you know, and the publisher, you know, and I agree with him, you know, frankly too long, you know, and he asked me to make it shorter. You know, that was, you know, that was very challenging to keep the original message, you know, in almost half the uh, words. Um, but the most rewarding part of it is where after 26 years of studying the word, my my mind, my knowledge was just uh, 
you know, similar to when kids go to a restaurant, you know, and they have all these dots, you know, that they, they connect the dots and they make a picture. And I think that's what happened to me. As I wrote the book, you know, it seemed that, that the Lord just connected every dot that I ever learned in the past 26 years, you know, and that's how the book really came about. Well, congratulations, Melvin. Again, our author is M. Alberto Zelaya Aragon. Am I close? <laughs> you did great. <laughs> I did great. And the name of the book or the title is Our Real Life in Christ, Experiencing the Life and Quality of Faith Provided by Jesus Christ to Overcome Any Obstacle in Our Lives. Thank you for Thank joining you, me today, Ma. How do we get copies of your book? Um, you can go to iUniverse.com, you know, and just put my name, and they they take them right to the website. Uh, right now, it's in the process of, you know, it, most likely it's going to be under my name, but it's still in the process of being established. So, uh, But if they go to iUniverse and just put my name uh, or the title of the book, you know, they should get you to that page. The easiest search would be Our Real Life in Christ. Yes, that would be the easiest. And if they do a search under your name, do they need all of the elements of your, your name or just no, your first? No, like Zelaya would be because I didn't see too many Zelayas in there. Zelaya would do it. Z-E-L-A-Y-A. A-Y-A. And last name, Aragon. A-R-A-G-O-N. Got it pretty close. Thank you so much for joining yeah, me today. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Enjoyed it. My pleasure. And for iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana, through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Fear, a Healthy Emotion if Well-Managed. And the author is J. Ebay Agbenyam, 
And eBay joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, eBay. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. Uh, This is a obviously a very fascinating topic because everybody at one time or another experiences fear and often even in the least degree in life sometimes it becomes uh, just immobilizes us but you say fear is a secret ingredient of life and of course it can determine our next course of action so before we get into more details about your view of fear, and as you say, a healthy emotion, if well-managed, tell us a little bit about your background, your professional background, and, and how this book came about. Thank you, Steve. I have two backgrounds, actually. My uh, first one is uh, I've been with UPS as a senior logistics associate for the past uh, 17 years. And uh, I'm also an industrial psychology professional, uh, which is what I have my degree in. Basically, what we do is we are more interested on uh, human behavior in the workplace, which uh, when, we, when we get involved, basically we translate uh, a work environment into high performance, engaged, um, and productive environment. So that's my background. Well, you make some very strong statements. I I love this one. We cannot conquer what we cannot confront. So the key to dealing with fear, as you say, well-managed, is to confront it. That's correct. Actually, if I can add one more line there, uh, the, the whole premise of the book, I define fear as an emotion that creates discomfort. It is what determines our next course of action, whether to react or respond to a situation. So basically, the way we view fear determines the result that we'll get. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, yes. So fear basically controls every action we make in some sort of another, in some way or another. That's correct. Let me put it the other way around, Steve. Uh, recent study shows that average brain processes about twelve to 60,000 thoughts on a daily basis. And 80% of those thoughts are negative. And 95% of them are repeated thoughts. So can you imagine if 80% of our thoughts are negative? That means we dwell in fear on a daily basis. And interestingly enough, uh, comfort leads to tradition, which means when we get comfortable doing whatever we are doing, it becomes a habit. So if we have, over the years, trained our mind to view fear as destructive, basically becomes our comfort zone. So here I am telling you that fear can also be constructive if well managed. So it's quite a thought-provoking topic or emotion to discuss. Right. Well, it can work in our favor, and that's that's really turning that around because most of us, obviously, we think of fear and that kind of when when you feel fear, you kind of feel frozen at times. You know, you just can't think, can't move. But you're just turning turning the whole thing on its head, so to speak. Right. 
actually, of all my studies, all my research I've done over the years, the great men and women that I've, I've, I've encountered, they share one thing in common, perseverance and boldness. That's including Nelson Mandela, who, uh, you know, passed away a few, few months ago. Mm-hmm. He admitted that fear can be paralyzing. Mm-hmm. But it was the same fear that, that compelled him to achieve greatness. You know. So what about the issue of violence? I mean, we live in a violent age. You know, there's a lot of violence all around us. It's on the news every day. Uh, I think in the back of our minds sometimes we are in situations or in places where we can even, you know, be a little scared that something could happen. Right. I think it goes, it goes back to that, uh, that recorder in our, in our brain about that 80% uh, negative thoughts. Some of them, are the, one, the ones that we make up based on previous experiences, not particularly uh, what happened at that moment. So we are operating on that fear based on the recorded uh, information we, we, we had, not so much about the one at hand, but going back to what I said about tradition, because we've already established in our minds that fear is negative. So when we see the unknown, it is very convenient for us to fear the unknown. So when you talk about violence, let me add one more thing there. Violence indirectly, every single one of us contribute to it. How we do that is when we avoid each other, when we fear each other negatively or destructively, it provokes minds for people to start acting out of order. So violence indirectly, every single one of us contribute to it, to it. I don't know if that makes sense to you, Steve. Yes, yes. Now, how does fear apply in the workplace? Good. In the, in the workplace, what pushes us to either fail or propel in whatever we do is fear. Number one can be fear of consequences. When we fear of being fired, for example, it will push you to show up at work on time. And now, on the other hand, managers, when they fear of losing their own jobs, they can easily falsify documents or falsify data to make their report look good. And as a, as a result of that, they will put their employees out of work. So when you look around, fear is real, it's powerful. But if you flip it, if you flip it around, if you look at the, uh, some pages in my book, you will see that fear, a good manager will fear for a company going down. And as, as a result of the company going down, he will get everybody involved, including the employees, to participate on what you do to save the dying company, as opposed to trying to fire some, set, set some people up and fire them so that he can keep his own job. So fear, in, in essence, can be good in a, in a workplace or can be bad, depending on how the management or how the people involved 
manage such fear. How would you describe your book? Is it a self-help book? Is it a book filled with inspiring stories? It's a combination of, how would you describe your book? I think I would qualify it as all of the above. It's self-help, inspiring, and also research or evidence-based, which means you're not just reading uh, my, my opinions. Uh, you'll be reading information that have already been researched uh, some of them are from uh, Harvard. Uh, some of them are from West Virginia. Some of them are from from, MI, from MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So we, we're talking about a well-established data here to support my position. I'm looking at your table of contents. Talk to me about why we fear to forgive some people, because I think we all know how empowering forgiveness is. There's a study made by uh, uh, Dr. Candy. She said the most powerful tool that any human being will have is forgiveness. But somehow we fear that if we do forgive another person that offended us, basically we're signing over the check to them. But actually, is in the reverse is the case. When you forgive anybody that offends you, it puts you in a position of power. I don't know if that, if that makes sense to you, Steve. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have a chapter about Jesus. It says Jesus feared is the is the heading on your chapter. Uh, what are you talking about there? Well, when Jesus was in a, in a human flesh, he feared. And some of the uh, evidence that showed that Jesus feared was when he was on his way to Calvary, on his way to the cross, he made a profound uh, statement when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. Why thou have forsaken me? Now, when you use that word forsaken, means it's a sense of abandonment. And it's a sense of fear. And also, he said on, the, uh, on another chapter where he said, let, let this cup pass over me. Not my will, but your will be done. So there were splits of seconds where he was worried, or where, where he feared that his Heavenly Father has abandoned him. That's a great fear we all have. I know we, none of us like to be alone. That's right. That's a terrible feeling that we're having to deal with something all by ourselves, even though sometimes we, like you've already pointed out, we need to stand up and confront our fear maybe all by ourselves. That's correct. There are... Other studies out there that suggest that American uh, employers spend about $400 billion every year as a result of uh, occupational-related stress. And in that, it's as a result of, it includes a result of fear. When people fear, when they are being abused, you see employee turnover spike. 
you see employee disengagement, you see absenteeism, you see what we call presenteeism. Presenteeism is basically when they come to work, they don't produce. They just stay there. So fear has a very profound impact in whatever we do in life. Therefore, we have to find a way to manage it. That way it can work in our own favor. Steve. And fear can lead to drug abuse. Drug abuse. That's right. That's right. There's a, there's a study also in my book that suggests that about 45% of African-American males are high school dropouts. And one of their reasons why they refuse to complete their high school program is because they believe that even when they finish the program, they are, their pay is just as good as a, another African-American that does not uh, graduate from high school. And that's, that's wrong. I mean, that's, that, that's, not, that's not correct. But because of this destructive fear, they, it led them to settle. That is their own reality. Therefore, they will drop out of high school. We've been listening to J. Ebay Agbanyim, and he is the author of his book, Fear, A Healthy Emotion, If Well-Managed. Ebay, tell us, tell us how to get your book. How do we order your book? You can get it at Amazon.com or also BarnesandNoble.com uh, or iUniverse.com. Thank you so much, eBay, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book today is titled The Future Has an Ancient Heart, and our author is Lucia Sciavola Birnbaum. Lucia, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm ready. Tell me about this book. It, it is a 418-page uh, not, it's not a novel. It's a, a research or a, how would you describe the book, I guess, is the best way to, dis- to ask the question. Well, I am an academic. I'm a professor emerita. Uh, it is it is an experimental uh, book in a sense because I take my academic background plus our first-hand uh, confirmation on site of African migration. The, the uh, subtitle of the book 
of the first edition and continuing is uh, f from the primordial African Mediterranean to occupations everywhere. And the, that was the 212 edition. There's a new edition which incorporates the 212 edition, which is called a love story, a prophecy, and a, a love story, a vision, and a prophecy. It's my husband who's passed away, Wally, and my explorations all over the wor world confirming African migrations everywhere. Interesting. Because, because I'm talking about the migration of val African values, which are caring, sharing, healing, and vision all over the world, which offer a hopeful possibility in a very bleak time because we're in a period of converging violence. You mentioned also in your comments that it's a love story of two ethnic and spiritual outsiders who live in the span of recent origins and mentions 1945. Is that a, a key point for us to be focusing on? Well, that's because we met in the uh, immediate aftermath of World War II and we lived together in the span of the uh, rise of the U.S. Empire to its condi present condition is the greatest empire in human history, now facing a crisis, or many crises, of converging violence. And your book, is it complicated for someone like me, who is a non-academic, to understand the concept? No, because I meant it not to be, not to aim for, well, I, I hope, it has been met with denial by academic audiences. The U.S. Mm. is characterized by denial of some of some bad things that are regarded as threatening and African origins are regarded uh, African origins and dark others are regarded as threatening this has been uh, well my book explores this phenomenon of denial because it also happened in our personal lives because Wally was a nuclear physicist whose background, ethnic background, was prophetic Judaism, and mine is prophetic Christianity. And together, we, he, he came with me on all my several, several exploratory journeys around the earth. Any event, it's a complex subject. I hope I have made it clear, because I meant, mean it to be read by the popular audience and by everybody else. I am a professor emerita, which means I am not constricted now by academic protocols. So you can cheat a little bit on your dissertations. <laughs> not not exactly, but not cheat, but uh, uh, make it a little more simply understood. Right, and and also I still I still mentor doctoral dissertations, and I encourage people to put their personal voice in what in the past has been a kind of a tendency to cover up the personal voice, which is, I think is a bad thing, because it covers up the real story, which is characteristic of our times, which submerged stories are rising to the surface. I think there's hope in that. Your book also has some uncomfortable and perhaps controversial topics that you address. Could you address those now? Well, the first one is denial, because my, my book has gotten lots of uh, 
lots of applause in, in Europe and as well as the rest of the world. It's been published in Italian and French editions, and I've gotten response from all over the world. But uh, it's a, it, it, it's a uh, view, the, the academic culture as well as the personal culture in the U.S. puts aside unpleasant truths, as Al Gore, when he said the inconvenient story. This is an inconvenient story, which has not received a lot of attention, although it's gotten magnificent congratulations by people like Alice Walker, who's a foremost feminist, by uh, Moleti Asante, who's a father of Afrocentrism. It's not an Afrocentric book in the conventional sense, because everybody is of African origin originally. It's not just because I'm talking about the culture that Africans took with them on, on migration. At about 60,000, beginning about 60,000 BCE, all over the earth, and took the values of caring and sharing, which they would never have survived if they did, if they hadn't, if they hadn't carried those values. Any event, it's a very long story, but... Uh, I think worth reading. What what themes in your book do you think are relevant for current topics, current day events? Well, I think this, I think this is a very bleak time because I think, uh, particularly in the United States, but around the world, there's a tendency not to appreciate the fact that we may be heading for extinction if we keep up these violence. And I think there's hopeful, there's hope if we recognize that we have a benign possibility in the values of caring and sharing and healing and vision, which is hard to see in the dark time. I think this is a dark time. This is a story of uh, our having reached a dark time. And uh, my, I'm just offering the possibility that if all of us recognize that every human being has in its DNA as well as it's in co- it's their cultural stories, these hopeful values, we may be able to sidestep and build a better world. I just want to say this book is, a, is based on science, particularly the science of genetics, but I'm a cult- feminist cultural historian, and it's both. And it's interdisciplinary and intercultural. Is there yeah. a particular scene or event that happens in the uh, in, in the discussion that you have have raised in your book that stands out that might really grab a person's attention? Well, I call it a love story because it begins with uh, my me- meeting Wally uh, the day after Thanksgiving, the night after Thanksgiving, nineteen forty-five and are falling in love and almost immediately marrying. And uh, our life together, which has been, which was, has and is still a kind of a, well, it's a, it's a love story, and it's lasted. And I offer the values of liminal times, which are birthing, harvesting, dying, and renewal as uh, the themes of life, and, and the particular uh, the particulars of our life together, which makes it unusual as an academic book. 
It is. It definitely is a unique perspective. And uh, for our listeners, uh, your origins, at least family, historically, are the are Italian th- coast, correct? The, Afri- the African Mediterranean. African Mediterranean. Before the, before the waters rose, 10,000 BCE, was part of the continent of Africa. So that both of us, in a sense, are, work, are t- talking about two people who are African, Semitic, and and I have discovered my African Semitic roots. We we uh, in a sense, it's that place in between two people who love each other and who can't quite articulate, don't often articulate this deep deep connection. But we lived it, and it's in our children. And I I do something outrageous by the end of the book in which I'm talking about how this legacy is apparent in our children, in our great-grandchildren, our and our wild great-grandchildren. <laughs> well, don't have great-great-grandchildren yet, but I do see some of those characteristic traits that go through the family tree popping up from time to time. It's astonishing. We're expecting another one in April, so that will be three. Wally was a numerologist, among other facets of his and I have, and I'm not a numbers. I'm a word person, but I've late, late, try, lately trying to figure out what he, because he thought in numbers, because he was a nuclear physicist. Mm. And I've been trying to figure out. And three is the number that goes all through our lives, and in my dreams, and when I wake up in the middle of the night and look at the clock. Any event. This is a long story, which I sure. Does three have a special significance besides the fact that it runs through the story of your lives? It means life. Life. How would you introduce your book to someone that doesn't know about the topic material that you have written about? Well, I I call it, in which I'm adopting my scholarly work to accelerate change to a peaceful and just political economy, as well as my activism and political and other movements challenging inequalities and injustices. I'm doing this by depending on my training as a cultural historian and then my teaching as a feminist cultural historian and my uh, continuing balancing of this professional and personal uh, both those values. Well, anyway, changing the present dangerous phenomenon of converging violence is deriving from inequality and injustice from the common epoch to the present. People regarded as dark others. I have cal- I have coined that term, dark others, to refer not only to people of dark skin, but people with threatening dark values, including mm. women. You think women have uh, threatening dark values? Well, because they carry <laughs> values of... <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, I'm teasing a little bit, Lucia. That's caring and sharing and healing. Yes. However, I am opposed to idealizing women so that I, I'm, I'm out of sync with dominant feminism, which tends to do- idealize women and to vilify all men. I know in my own life and my own family that's not true of all men. And I oppose that universalizing men as uh, arrogant. Well, well, well uh, th- thank you. I'll accept that on behalf of uh, the people in my family who are 
least polite. And our guys. <laughs> In the long run, has nothing to do with color. It has to do with values. You can change color in three generations. You can go from dark to white or white to dark, as, as, we, as we're doing rapidly. But values, and, and you can see values in the way people behave. What I'm talking about is, is a uh, phenomenon in which I think what I'm talking about is decent human societies in which people care for each other, share with each other, and heal each other. Wonderful ideal. You mentioned in your book uh, an individual named James Baldwin. Do you recall that story or that comment that he made? In a sense, what he touched on in the in the fire next time, you know, God said to Noah, the flood now, but the fire next Fires time. Fires next time. Were there any unique challenges about putting a 418-page book together of this magnitude? What is, I think, important to know is that I wrote this book as my husband was dying because I was stuck in writer's block uh, in 211 wow. when I noticed the Occupy movements, and I had a resident grandson who was in that, still is in that movement, in which my family, you was in the same, I, I have family that's in the 2%, and I have family who are occupiers, hmm. and I, I watch this, and yet they all love each other, and they all ex- express in their personal lives these values, and uh, I find that heartening in my own case. But but also heartening for the world, because I I don't think we're that unique. I'm certainly not unique, and I'm certainly not an icon. I'm a I'm a great grandmother who just would like to leave a better world for and, everybody. Encouraging words. Uh, the title of this book is "The Future Has an Ancient Heart." Lucia, where do we get a copy of your book? Well, it's an iUniverse book available in hardback and softback, but it's available also as an e-book uh, on all of the Nooks and Kindles and Barnes and Nobles and all of those, which I don't even know exactly where they are, but uh, they're there. <laughs> Some place in cyberspace they can find you. Lucia Chiavola Birnbaum. Capilla. I got and close. My name means Blackbird. Capilla. C-H-I-A-V-O-L-A. Anyway, there's a whole connection of my husband and me with that Blackbird. That's fascinating. Any, any event. It, that's what the name means. The Normans put an H in the, in the name. The Normans came in, in, in the hope of Christianizing Sicily in, in 1060. They took England in 1066. I am a mixture of African, Norman, and God knows what other elements. They sure messed any up event. your name, didn't they? Chiavola. Chavola. Chavola. Well, I have two different uh, things in front of me. I, I would pronounce it Chavola. Close, huh? But <laughs> in the south, it's pronounced Chavola, which is the African. And the last so name, it, I do have correct, Birnbaum. Right, which means pear tree. Beautiful. I, the, book, the book goes into the meaning of the names. My, my husband's middle name was Isaiah, which has a prophetic implication, which I think he... He lived in his own life. My name is Lucia, which refers to the African astonishment when they saw the light emerge from the dark. Fascinating. Those, those two are volatile prophetic elements who live together. 
Lucia, thank you for visiting with us today and your patience and kindness in the multiple pronunciations of your name and sharing your story in what should be an interesting read. The future has an ancient heart. We'd love to hear from you in the future. Thank you. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.